Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Welcome to the second podcast of our Title Nerd series. In this episode, Bethany Abley and I, my co-host and my partner, are going to discuss coverage investigations and also a title case of the month that's picked out by Mike Crowley, who's an invaluable member of our title team. We'll start the podcast with Ron and I having a conversation about coverage investigations in the context of title insurance. And then Bethany and Mike will talk to you about their case of the week, or more appropriately, their their case for this podcast. Ron, I know since I've worked with you now, I think, is it 20 years, Ron? Yeah, that's right. And it's been 20 years, and I know you have done all types of coverage investigations, you know, from the one-day review of the pleadings to coverage investigations that last months and include multiple, multiple uh, examinations under oath. So we thought you'd be a perfect guy to explain to our audience what is a coverage investigation? And obviously, you know, a coverage investigation is done by an insurer to determine whether there's coverage under the policy. But can you tell us, Ron, how does a title insurance get the right to do a coverage investigation? Yeah, that, that, thanks, Mike. The title insurer is permitted to do a coverage investigation under the title insurance policy. And both lenders and owners policy have provisions in them that give the title insurer the right to get certain information. Section four of the standard ALTA policy allows the title insurer to receive a proof of loss from an insured, setting forth what the, the damages are that the insurers believes that they've incurred as a result of the defect that forms the basis of their claim. Section six provides a duty to cooperate. And again, this is uh, section six of both the Alta, both owners and lender policies, 2006 version. But similar provisions are uh, found in other policy forms. Section six requires the insured to cooperate. And 6B specifically requires that the insured submit a representative for an examination under oath to, to be interviewed under oath about the policy or in the claim and the circumstances surrounding it, as well as it requires the insured to provide documents that maybe it's in in its possession relating to the claim and the damages claimed, and also obligates the insured to provide authorization for the insurer to get information from third parties in the form of documents, books, ledgers, checks, whatever, from third parties. And so these different provisions of the policy allow for these three types of investigation to go on, proof of loss, interviews, and the obtaining of documents. And you mentioned the 2006 version. Let me give a plug to Mike Crowley, who talked about the new ALTA forms that are coming out this year. Those same sections are in the new ALTA forms, aren't they, Mike? 
the right to conduct an investigation is in the new forms. Now, Ron, how does a coverage investigation start? So a coverage investigation starts when an insured files a claim with the title insurer. And there's generally two scenarios in which this will happen. If the insurer is involved in some type of litigation, they will generally forward the pleading, the, often a complaint that will bring them into the litigation to the title insurer. Sometimes there's no litigation, but an insurer becomes aware of a defect or an alleged defect or an encumbrance or something that they believe is affecting their uh, property rights, and they'll reach out to the title insurer and raise that issue with them. And if it is in the context of a litigation, which frankly is a lot of what you and I see, Ron, how do they determine whether What's the initial step in doing the analysis of whether the complaint is a covered claim? The first step is generally to determine whether or not the title insurer is obligated to provide a defense to the insured in connection with the litigation. And to do that, the insurer, under the law of most states, will look at the policy, will look at the complaint and the allegations in the complaint against the insurer and they will then decide whether a claim that may be covered is stated in the complaint. And this isn't with respect to what actually is, this is generally in most states, including New Jersey, where we do a lot of our work, is with respect to what's alleged. And if a claim that would qualify for coverage under a complaint is alleged in the complaint, then the title insurer will make a determination regarding coverage on that basis. And then there are some states, Ron, with regard to coverage. I think what you were referring to is called the eight corners doctrine. Four corners of the policy, the four corners of the complaint, you put them together. Even if the defense is frivolous, if it falls within the four corners of the policy, it's covered. But I think there are more than a few states now that also indicate if there's some extrinsic evidence that would indicate it's covered that you do have to consider that. And then maybe that, and that's the reason why you, you should always be mindful of the law of, your, of the state you're in, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So we've compared the complaint and we've compared the policy and we find there's coverage. And now sometimes that doesn't end, right, Ron? Sometimes the coverage investigation requests information and examinations from the insured like you requested. Can you tell us what issues are probed during a coverage investigation? What is the insurer trying to find out? Mike, to your, your last point, sometimes an insurer will find that there's a reason to provide a defense under the policy based on the eight corners doctrine that we just discussed, but will nonetheless reserve their right with respect to the ultimate coverage decision and whether to provide indemnification under the policy or other things pending the results of their investigation. So there are situations where a defense can be provided, but the investigation still goes on, and we see that quite a bit. The sort of issues that the insurer is going to be looking at, again, is to see whether or not the alleged defect or encumbrance or loss falls within the coverage of the policy. And there's three sort of subsets that they're going to be looking to investigate with respect to that question. One is, does the, the item claimed, the, you know, we'll call it the defect, does that fall within the coverage grant of the policy? Then every policy, title insurance policy, has exclusions. And so the second thing is going to be, does the de claim defect 
fall within an exclusion that would therefore make it so the title insurer doesn't have to provide coverage. And then the third thing, their general category they're gonna look for is does the claim defect fall within one of the exceptions to the policy that's contained in one of the schedules that are generally attached. Generally that's found in what you'd find as schedule B of the policy. So that's painting with a very broad brush as you know, Mike, but generally your investigation is gonna be looking to sort of answer those three questions. And there's an exclusion called 3A, which I know you're quite familiar with, Ron. Is that one of the exclusions that uh, sometimes is a, is a big issue with regard to coverage and investigations? And if I'm right about that, can you tell us why? Yeah, it certainly is. Exclusion 3A excludes coverage where an insured created, suffered, assumed, or agreed to the defect that's forming the basis for their title claim. So in short, where an insurer contributes to the problem that they're seeking insurance coverage for, you know, exclusion A generally will provide that the insurer is not obligated to provide coverage. And so often we spend time looking in our coverage investigations, especially those that involve, you know, fraud or allegations of misconduct, to determine whether or not insurers have been involved in these things that would allow them to have created, assume, suffered, agreed to the defect. Exclusion 3B is related, Mike, and that has to do with the situation where the insured is aware of a defect prior to the policy being issued that wasn't a public record and wasn't known to the insured. And that would be another grounds on which coverage can be denied. So these are two big exclusions that insurers spend time looking for to determine whether or not coverage is required. Now, I know from working with you for 20 years that you've done some work and have some stories that maybe you can share with our audience. Yeah, I, sure. And, and Mike, let me preface that by saying my experience is these inquiries have all been fact-based. We never start out saying, let's generate things with which coverage can be denied. You know, most of the insurers that we've worked for always are just looking to get the facts, doing an investigation and analysis based on the facts that come. And sometimes that means they provide coverage. Sometimes that means they don't provide coverage. But we have had situations where it's pretty clear that there's been, you know, massive fraud. And so I'm thinking of a case we had a few years ago where there were 18, 19 people all involved in the fraud. And there was a strong suspicion that the parties seeking title coverage were also involved in the fraud, given the nature and the scope and the extreme invasiveness of the behavior that formed the basis for the loss. And so in that situation, we spent a lot of time going through warehouses looking for old files to see whether they established that an insured had knowledge of the defects. We hired private investigators to go and talk to former employees of the insured to see whether or not they had any awareness or any knowledge of the defects. And we spent time, you know, there was one case where we actually looked at old cell phone records and found that the day before the transaction closed, there were a large number of phone calls between those that were known to be involved in the fraud and employee of the insured, which you know suggested that there was collusion with respect to this, you know, the fraudulent situation. 
So there's all sorts of things that we can do to try to determine what the true facts are when we get reason to believe that there's issues that arise. I think, Ron, you're being modest. I, I think I recall that the situation you're talking about with the insured is we actually got the cell phone records as part of our investigation, and you just started dialing cell phone numbers randomly. You got the bank's employee's name, and that led to disclosure of information that we believe the lender involved actually took a $10,000 bribe by the racetrack. Yeah, and in that case, the allegation had been made previously but we were looking to confirm that occurred and, and we did, you know, it was late one night, it was eight o'clock at night. I'm dialing cell phone numbers randomly and lo and behold, one of the, the fraudsters phone records, cell phone numbers took me right to this former bank employee. Right. And I think in that case also, which was a $31 million fraud, you and another one of our colleagues hung out in a hotel room while our investigators talked to a witness and got them agreed to talk to you. And then you rushed from the hotel room to the McDonald's in Maryland and elicited some valuable information that helped in our investigation of the case. That's exactly right, Mike. And we do what we have to, to, to get the job done. Of course, not all our investigations are as dramatic as that, but this one was a $31 million fraud and claim. And it warranted that level of scrutiny. It's interesting since you said not all of our investigations are to that extent. It reminds me of what Mike said earlier when we started the conversation that sometimes we have a coverage investigation that could be one day. You look at something and you know right away, yes, there's coverage or no, there's not. And other times it takes quite a bit longer because there is a lot of analysis that needs to be done. So you kind of have both ends of the spectrum, I think, at least from my experience, I've seen it both ways as well. I agree, Bethany, and you, you even have the third spectrum. I think, Ron, we had one case regarding a missed easement in New Jersey where we absolutely thought there was coverage, and there ended up not being due to yours and mine review of documents and I think five or six examinations under oath. Can, why don't you tell our audience about that case? Yeah, I, I think that's good. And this illustrates the situation where it's useful for an insured to invoke their right to look at third-party documents under the, under the policy. We had done a, an investigation and analysis and obtained documents from the insured and not spotting any immediate and obvious coverage issues. However, we asked the insured to give us authorization to get the records of its attorneys who had helped them with and done the laboring or with respect to due diligence and closing of the transaction. And in those records, there were emails that indicated that the attorneys and the insured by extension were aware of the existence of the easement that they were claiming was a defect on the property. And based on that, that led us in an unexpected direction with respect to the coverage determination. Now, Ron, how does it work when you have a coverage investigation going on at the same time, there's an active litigation and it's being done under the reservation of rights? Are there any special protections that are done to make sure that the coverage investigation doesn't impact in any way the, the defensive title that would be going on if the insurer does indeed decide the complaint alleges a covered claim, but I still want to do an investigation. How does that work? Can you can take yeah. us through that? 
Yeah, those are situations where an insurer and an insured want to be very careful because what they don't want to have happen is have the information that's obtained as part of a coverage investigation become public knowledge or become able to be used by other parties in the litigation that the insured is in. And so what we will always do, as you know, Mike, is we will have the insured enter into a a confidentiality agreement, a joint defense agreement, whereby the documents and information that's exchanged between the insurer and the insured or between our firm on behalf of the insurer and the insured are not going to be discoverable or producible in any other context, including the litigation. And sometimes I think I find the coverage investigation can actually help in the defense of title because you have two eyes looking at it with, you know, obviously the insurer has a has an interest in, in sustaining its insurance title. So coverage investigations are, are not always bad for the insurer. Sometimes it really can assist in their defense and help them out. But Ron, let's sort of finish up our section and turn it over to Bethany Abley. But I'll just ask you whether you have any suggestions that you can give for insurers or insureds with regard to coverage investigations. Yeah, for insureds, I'd say two things. They both start with the word C, cooperate and communicate. Oftentimes, insureds will be frustrated because they have to go through this investigation process. Sometimes they're frustrated because it takes a week. Sometimes they're frustrated because it takes longer. But their best and quickest path to resolution is to cooperate and to be responsive to the request to provide the insurer what they're looking for as it's relevant and reasonable. So they need to cooperate. And the other thing is to communicate because most insurers want to do the right thing. They want to be of service to their insureds. And where insureds have concerns, where they have questions, we found that most of our insurer clients are are willing to talk and willing to work through problems in, in a proactive way. So for them, it's to cooperate and communicate. For insureds, I'd say it's to be thorough with your investigation. We told you about some of the things we've done to be thorough over the years and had the insurers sort of said, no, they don't want to spend the time or effort to get to the bottom of things. They would have, in some cases, been in a position where they needed to provide coverage when they really weren't obligated to because of the facts as they really existed. But they wouldn't have known that unless they had done a comprehensive and thorough coverage investigation. So that's what I'd say to insurers is just to be thorough, not be afraid of of digging in and, and fully investigating the matter. Thank you very much for your time. I'm sure the audience will find your insights valuable, as have I, for 20 years now. And with that, I will turn it over to my partner, Bethany Abley, and also my colleague and valuable member of the team, Michael Crowley. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, Ron. That was very informative. I want to once again welcome everyone to Title Nerds. And Mike Crowley, as Mike O'Donnell mentioned, is a very valuable member of our team. I would say one of the best associates at the firm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. Hopefully, I'm not insulting anybody else. <laughs> you, better, you better say that because he is. So, there we go. So anyway, Mike Crowley, thank you for joining us today. What is the case that we'll be discussing? Thanks, Bethany. The, the case we're discussing today is an 11th Circuit decision called In Ray Lindsay, which came down earlier this year. And for everyone following along at home, the case site, I believe, is 2021 Westlaw 140661. 
And as Mike mentioned, it's 11th Circuit and it's a 2021 decision. So what the type of case is this, Mike? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure, so th this is actually an appeal uh, of a bankruptcy court opinion that addresses two types of issues. First, it's a question of whether a bankruptcy court retains jurisdiction uh, over an adversary proceeding seeking quiet title after the debtor dismisses the underlying bankruptcy action. And second, and a little more relevant to our podcast today, it's whether a court can reform a deed when one of the purported sellers fails to sign the deed uh, and later claims that he never intended to do so and that the purchaser does not have full title to the property. Interesting. What are the facts of the case, the underlying facts that were at issue here? In 2015, the individual debtor filed a voluntary petition for bankruptcy relief. Uh, and in his schedule of assets, uh, he listed a fee simple interest in a commercial multi-tenant building, as well as the adjacent vacant lot. There was a mortgage holder on the property who in 2017 brought a foreclosure action, uh, at which point the debtor basically tried to find a purchaser for a fire sale and ultimately found a purchaser in a company called Duckworth. The individual debtor co-owned this property with one of his companies in which he was the president and majority shareholder that we'll just call the seller corporation. So the contract and the title commitment identified both the individual debtor as well as the seller corporation as the sellers of the property. Pursuant to the title corporation, the individual debtor and the seller corporation were required to execute a warranty deed as a condition of the sale. Now at the closing, however, the individual executed the warranty deed as president of the seller corporation, but he did not execute the deed in his individual capacity. And it later came out that Duckworth's attorneys had used a software that auto-filled all the closing documents, and that when a staff member had put in the relevant information, they had forgot to put in the individual debtor's name. So therefore, every document simply listed the seller corporation as a seller and did not mention the individual debtor, despite the fact that he was a 50% owner of the property. So six months later, upon learning of the issue, the individual debtor reached out to Duckworth and actually called Duckworth and basically said, just to let you know, your attorney screwed up and you need to play your cards right if you want to get your new mortgage paid off. He then followed up with an email claiming that he was the 50% owner of the property, that he didn't authorize any improvements to the property, that he didn't authorize the mortgage, and that the mortgage did not encumber his 50% interest. He demanded that any construction on the property halt immediately. And finally, he claimed that he was entitled to 50% of the rents on the property. So at this point, the new owner had a problem. Yeah. It definitely did. According to the title records, Duckworth had paid $450,000 for property that thought was worth $480,000. But as it turns out, it only had a 50% interest because the individual debtor had failed to sign the deed. Additionally, since it purchased the property, it had conducted significant renovations that the debtor was now challenging. And in addition to the owner, there also was a lender on the property who had given a mortgage to Duckworth that was secured by the property. And, and although the court doesn't go into the amount of the mortgage, I, I think it's safe to say it was probably above 50% of the value. So they, they had a real issue here. And Mike, the bankruptcy court had approved the sale, right, before the actual closing happened? Correct. The individual debtor had actually uh, filed a motion seeking approval for the sale, which mentioned his name individually as one of the sellers, and the court approved that. So how did they try to fix this? Or did they try to fix it at all before going to court? Well, the, the first thing that Duckworth did was uh, Duckworth's attorney sent a corrective warranty deed to the debtor, which the debtor refused to execute. At that point, then, Duckworth commenced an adversary proceeding against the debtor and the seller corporation in the bankruptcy court, in which it sought reformation of the warranty deed and to quiet title. And although the bankruptcy case was voluntarily dismissed by the debtor, the bankruptcy court retained jurisdiction on this adversary proceeding, and it found in favor of Duckworth. 
And I think it was interesting, if I recall correctly from the case, the voluntary dismissal of the bankruptcy proceeding, I think was about five days after the adversary complaint was filed or something like that. So I think we can see what the individual here was trying to do by his voluntary dismissal. So tell us what happened on the appeal. So, so on appeal, this went up to the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit affirmed it. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there were two main issues. So first off, there was a question of whether the bankruptcy court had subject matter jurisdiction or their adversary proceeding, because as mentioned, the debtor had dismissed his bankruptcy case five days after the adversary proceeding was brought. So the court found that it was, the adversary proceeding was related to the underlying bankruptcy action. It found that out because there was a motion filed for the sale of the property that the adversary proceeding was related to the underlying bankruptcy action, and that therefore it did have jurisdiction. Second, and more relevant for our purposes, the court held that the bankruptcy court had a sufficient evidentiary basis to reform the warranty deed to accurately express the true intention of the parties. The court found that the parties intended for Duckworth to buy both the seller corporation's interest and the individual debtor's entire interest in the parcels. Among other things, they looked at the contract and the title commitment, they also looked at the motion that I had mentioned before, where the individual debtor said he was looking to sell, quote, his property to Duckworth as part of the bankruptcy proceeding. The court found uh, essentially that the parties had made a mutual mistake because the warranty deed omitted the debtor in his individual capacity, and that that was contrary to the party's intent that Duckworth purchased the entire property. Finally, it found that Duckworth's attorneys were not grossly negligent which would have prevented reformation of the deed and simply found that they were negligent. Uh, and based on all this, it, it affirmed the bankruptcy court, found that there was a mutual mistake, and it granted the relief for quiet title in favor of Duckworth. So in your view, what's the takeaway from this case? Why is it important for this Title Nerds podcast? Well, in addition to providing some guidance on, on litigating issues in bankruptcy courts, it, it provides some good case law on litigating issues with mutual mistake, and reformation defenses with regard to property transfers. The, the attorney for Duckworth, when there was a hearing in front of the bankruptcy court, testified that, quote, errors happen in 99 times out of 100. The party on the other side acknowledges the error and signs the corrective deed. Unfortunately, in that other 1% of cases, it needs to be litigated. And these are some of the defenses that you can raise. We had a similar issue a few years ago where we had a property that was sold. It was owned by, I think it was on nine or 12 couples. Whatever reason, they all signed the contract, they were all paid, but when they actually went to do the deed, three couples were omitted. And it wasn't discovered until about 25 or 30 years later. And by the time we got the case, the people who were omitted, they had all passed away. So we actually had to reach out to their heirs, who at that point were all in their 70s, and basically called them and say, look, your parents were supposed to sign a deed 30 years ago. They got paid for it, but they never actually paid it. So can you just sign a deed on their behalf? And it took a few months to get it to convince everyone that we weren't fraudsters and that everything was on the level. But ultimately, they all agreed to sign the deed, but we, we were prepared to litigate if we had to. And these were some of the defenses we were going to raise. One other thing I, I might say as a takeaway in this case, for purposes of things that we do, I know in this case, one of the things the court talked about was that in the actual filings in the bankruptcy action, the individual spoke about his interest in the property and the motion for the sale of the property talked about authorizing him to sell the property, never mentioning his company. And on the schedule of assets filed in the bankruptcy, it mentioned his interest in the property, et cetera. And I just would note that sometimes bankruptcy pleadings, even if you're in a litigation that's not in bankruptcy at the time or whatnot, we've had real estate litigations where there was a bankruptcy several years earlier that had great information in the bankruptcy pleadings that we could use in the real estate litigation. 
So for instance, you might have a situation where you have a borrower claiming, I knew nothing about this mortgage. You're trying to foreclose a mortgage on my house. I knew nothing about, I just found out about this mortgage six months ago. And then we do some digging and we find bankruptcy pleadings from five years earlier. And those bankruptcy, the bankruptcy petition lists that mortgage as a valid mortgage on the property from that same borrower. So it's just something to keep in mind. You can find information in different places. And again, it might not even be a pending bankruptcy, but do some digging, do some research. If the borrower or the person challenging title has owned this property for a while and they filed a bankruptcy, take a look at those and see if they've mentioned that anywhere in that. And sometimes you'll see people who can't get out of their own way. They claim one thing in a litigation challenging the mortgage, and then you've got sworn bankruptcy petitions saying something else. So something to keep in mind, keep an eye out for. That's a great point, Bethany, and you're right. We have found that in numerous, numerous cases, admissions that we've used in summary judgment briefs. It's an, really an excellent point. And I think for our audience, that ends the second Title Nerds podcast. We appreciate you listening in, and you can visit us at our website, Riker Danzig. And as we've said before, we run a blog, and we're certainly happy to put you on our client list so that you're updated on a regular basis about the recent developments in real estate, title insurance, and even banking law. We cover that as well. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to our special guests, Ron Ahrens and Mike Crowley. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.